from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, May 12th. Today, an attempt to undo the Mueller investigation why small businesses are still struggling to get loans, and the history of Purell. This week, a couple thousand former prosecutors and other Justice Department employees penned an open letter calling on Attorney General William Barr to resign, and they also called on Congress to look into a recent decision that he made. That's a lot of people, a lot of former prosecutors. It is. What is a remarkable move by the Department of Justice. They were sort of organized by this group called Protect Democracy, which has organized similar letters in the past. There's been a lot of angst with a lot of decisions that Bill Barr has made as attorney general. Just really unprecedented for them to turn around and do this today. Uh, I'm not going to tell you that anyone is surprised by this move, but it's certainly unprecedented. It is notable. I mean, we lose sight sometimes of how notable it is to have thousands of former prosecutors all signing on to one open letter. So what do you make of this? Yeah, Brooke, the fix is in. This is an absolute injustice. You could see this coming, but let's just remember... I'm Matt Zapatosky. I'm a national security reporter at The Post. So what prompted this letter? Why were people so outraged? Well, last week, the attorney general intervened in a case involving the president's friend, Mike Flynn, the former national security advisor. So in the weeks before this, there had been a lot of controversy about Mike Flynn's criminal case. He had pleaded guilty years ago now to lying to the FBI about some conversations he had with the then Russian ambassador, Sergei Kislyak, kind of in the presidential transition when Trump had been elected but not yet sworn into office. He was actually one of the first people to plead guilty and agree to cooperate in the special counsel's investigation, special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation. But since that time, he changed defense teams and went on the attack against kind of his own plea. And in recent weeks, the Justice Department had turned over to his defense team some new documents that they alleged showed all kinds of Justice Department impropriety. Most germane to this, they said that he was entrapped. So Bill Barr, with all of this kind of swirling, gets the Justice Department to intervene in that case and ask that it be thrown out, even though Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor, had pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI. Bill Barr's Justice Department essentially argued last week, we can't stand by that anymore. In fact, we want a federal judge to throw the case out entirely. But what is their rationale? Like, does he not think that Michael Flynn is guilty of lying to the FBI about his interactions with the Russian government, even though Michael Flynn said that he did exactly that? Or is Barr arguing that Flynn is guilty, but that he just doesn't think that he should be punished for what he did? Well, it's kind of this 
what legal analysts would say a contorted legal argument that the Justice Department just couldn't prove this case in court if it were to ever go to trial and that it doesn't serve the interests of justice to have Michael Flynn plead guilty, essentially, even though he already did, but to sort of stand behind that plea. The technical legal argument here is when you plead guilty to lying to the FBI, there are kind of a couple elements. One is that you lied, right? And Michael Flynn has admitted that. The other element is that your lie is relevant to an ongoing investigation. It's what they call material to an ongoing investigation. Michael Flynn, by the way, also admitted to that, but Bill Barr came to the conclusion, and this U.S. attorney he tapped to look into the case, came to the conclusion that the Justice Department couldn't prove that Flynn's lie was material to an investigation. Essentially, Bill Barr concluded when the FBI went to interview Mike Flynn, they didn't have a good reason to do so. Therefore, the lie wasn't material to anything. Therefore, they can't sort of stand behind the plea. He hasn't been shy about defending this decision on the day he made it. He went on CBS and basically said, Our duty, we think, uh, is to dismiss the case. You know, I got involved in this case because there was wrongdoing, and I am trying to have a sense of justice for all. Mike Flynn, in his view, was being treated unfairly, and he had to intervene, and he wouldn't be shy about defending that decision. You know you're going to take a lot of incoming, as they say in the military, (laughs) for, for this decision. I'm prepared for that, but I also think it's sad that uh, nowadays, uh, these partisan feelings are so strong that people have lost any sense of justice. When history looks back on this decision, how do you think it will be written? Well, history is written by the winner, so it largely depends on, on <laughs> uh, who's writing the history. So then, is that it? Like, because Barr stepped in, now Michael Flynn's case is over and he's just going to get off? Well, that's not it. And that's sort of one of the reasons that this group of thousands of former federal prosecutors intervened. Because Michael Flynn has already pleaded guilty, a federal judge has to sign off on the Justice Department's move to dismiss the case. Now, the standard for him doing so is pretty low, but he could do a number of things like hold a hearing and get to the bottom of exactly what happened, maybe delving deeper into Bill Barr and the Justice Department's new legal rationale in this case. And this group of thousands of former federal prosecutors, I think I mentioned earlier, they want the judge to hold that hearing and really dig in. And if the judge thinks it's wise, they didn't come out one way or the other on this, but if the judge thinks it's wise, refuse to throw out the plea and just kind of proceed to sentence Michael Flynn. And has President Trump said anything so far about the fact that it's looking like Michael Flynn is going to walk away from all of this without a conviction? Yeah, Trump has been extremely vocal and extremely happy about the decision. He went on Fox and Friends the morning after the Justice Department intervened and talked at length about how great and courageous a person Bill Barr was. If Bill Barr was your first attorney general, would there have been a Mueller probe and a Russia hoax? No, uh, there wouldn't be. Uh, he would have stopped it immediately. He would. He saw it. Immediately, he would have seen it immediately, uh, Jeff. Long story short, President Trump is very, very happy to see the Justice Department move to let his friend off. And he's kind of launched from that into what seems to be his next thing, which is like getting the people who were involved in the Russian investigation prosecuted. We're cleaning up Justice Department. We're cleaning up the FBI. And I love these people. I love the FBI. These are great. If you did a poll there, I'd do very well in the FBI. But the top was crooked. They were dirty cops. 
So one of the things that's notable about Michael Flynn's case is that it came out of the original investigation that was conducted by the Mueller team. And I think that what you saw last week is one of several instances where it seems like William Barr is trying to second-guess the Mueller investigation or walk back some of the things that happened as a result of the Mueller investigation. So how has that played out for other people who were prosecuted because of Mueller's findings? Yeah. So Bill Barr really, you know, he came onto the job basically when Mueller's investigation was done. About a month in, Mueller submitted his final report. And, you know, since then, you can see all sorts of examples of how Bill Barr has sought to investigate the investigators or personally intervene in cases brought by Mueller's team to change the outcome. Here with Flynn is maybe the most dramatic. He's asking the whole case be thrown out, even though there was a guilty plea. The second most dramatic example, though, was just a couple of months ago when Roger Stone, another Trump friend, the last case to be brought by Mueller, Roger Stone was convicted at a trial for lying to Congress, Bill Barr intervened to reduce the recommendation that career prosecutors wanted to give for what he should be sentenced to. They wanted like seven to nine years. Bill Barr came in and said, no, we, the Justice Department, are going to recommend less time than that. And the four career prosecutors on the case withdrew. Similarly, in in this Michael Flynn instance, the one former Mueller prosecutor on the case withdrew from it before the Justice Department kind of went on the attack against its own case. So that Roger Stone sentencing was the other notable example. And and this same group organized a letter around that time, and prosecutors at that time, too, called on Bill Barr to step down. So obviously, these actions from the attorney general have big implications for the people who are being prosecuted. But I wonder what implications they have for the Department of Justice itself and how this agency works. Well, there's a couple. I mean, one is the effect on morale, right? In our talks with Justice Department employees, prosecutors, attorneys, and other segments of the Justice Department in recent days, there's a real sense that their work is being undercut, that they don't feel if they have a politically hot case that the boss will really have their back. And that sort of demoralizing makes it hard to go to work. We talked to a few people who said they're actually, you know, looking around, looking for other jobs. It's not like we have seen any kind of mass resignation but because these are career employees, you know, these aren't like political appointees who are kind of always job hopping. It's a big deal. They have to line up their next employment. Two is the effect on kind of cases going forward, right? A lot of legal analysts looked at this brief that the Justice Department filed in the Michael Flynn case and said, wow, this would be a great brief if it were written by a defense attorney. So this gives defense attorneys in other cases all sorts of avenues to attack those cases, to attack whether their client's interview or statements were material to an investigation. I mean, they have now this memo to say, look, the Justice Department took this position in Michael Flynn's case. Why shouldn't it apply here? And I think there's also the issue of the public appearance of the Department of Justice. And that was something that was even highlighted in in this letter from all these former prosecutors. Our democracy depends on a Department of Justice that acts as an independent arbiter of equal justice, not as an arm of the president's political apparatus. And that when you have these cases where the attorney general is stepping in, essentially to do things that are good for former allies of the president, then it seems like the attorney general is working on behalf of the president and his friends. 
you know, I think what a lot of former prosecutors and even current prosecutors would tell you is that's important beyond just optics, right? If people view the department as politicized, as just doing the bidding of the president, that's going to make juries a lot less likely to trust what the FBI tells them in like a local political corruption case. Michael Flynn, at the end of the day, if he had just pleaded guilty and been sentenced some time ago, he might not have gone to jail at all, you know. But Bill Barr's intervening and undoing his case altogether after the president has kind of repeatedly clamored about the injustice, that has real effect on how people view the Justice Department. And that could affect other cases with high stakes. Matt Zapatosky covers the Justice Department for The Post. So, Aaron Gregg, a few weeks ago, we talked to you about the Small Business Administration, which was going to be giving out loans from the Paycheck Protection Program. And these loans were going to go to needy small businesses. What has happened since we talked then? So over the past month, the SBA has really done its best to scale up this program like it never has before. They're used to dealing with these sort of geographically contained disasters. This one's sort of happening everywhere at once. And what's happened is they've become kind of overwhelmed with applications. So there are two programs that kind of show opposite problems. The first is the Paycheck Protection Program, which is having money flow out extremely quickly. It's through the private banks that are doing this. The problem there is that a lot of people are getting money that don't really need it. The Paycheck Protection Program has spent several hundred billion dollars, and we're seeing quite a few large companies that employ more than 500 people with massive valuations and actual options on the private market that are getting Paycheck Protection Program loans, billions of dollars going to these large companies like Shake Shack and Ashford Hospitality Trust. It's a real estate investment firm that are getting these loans when they're really not small businesses. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the disaster loan program, which is really meant for the smallest businesses, those that don't employ a lot of people, and they just need an economic lifeline to survive. That program is run directly by the government, and it is just overwhelmed by demand. They've gotten, depending on who you talk to, we know it's at least 3 million applications. Some say it's closer to 10 million. Uh, What we know for sure is that they're completely overwhelmed and they've only processed about 1% of the applications they've got uh, really after two months. So there are a lot of businesses that have been actively seeking out these loans that have not gotten any money at all, businesses that really need them. That's right, quite a few. And in fact, the vast majority are still waiting for that money. If there is this sense that the Small Business Administration is really strained, that there's not enough money for everyone, that a lot of needy businesses aren't getting what they need, then why is it that you have these examples of these larger companies, publicly traded companies, multi-billion dollar corporations that are actually getting these loans? So that is an example of how the Paycheck Protection Program works. Because they relied on private banks to dole out the money, and to make decisions about who gets the money, what we find is that the people who end up getting the most loans and getting them the most quickly are the ones who have an inside track with the banker. 
conflict of interest rules don't apply there. In every town and every city across America, there are well-connected community bankers who in many cases will dole out these funds to their friends. And there's very little oversight from the SBA at this point. One egregious example of this is the Los Angeles Lakers, the basketball team, that they got a loan from the government. That's right. The cap on employees to get a Paycheck Protection Program loan is 500. That means that any business with less than 500 employees, and in some cases, even if you have more than, you can get an exception. Uh, the rules for this program were formed over really decades as different businesses lobbied for loopholes here and there. So what we're seeing is that it really is possible for a very wealthy, well-to-do business to get one of these loans, while there are other businesses that maybe aren't as well-connected, maybe don't know how to work the banking system, your mom-and-pop shops, that are still trying to figure the system out. And I've also seen some examples of companies where they've essentially applied for these loans through their franchises or through their different properties or locations, that even though this is a huge national or international company that has billions of dollars, that when they apply through you know their smaller locations and apply from 40 different properties, that it looks like a bunch of small businesses that are just individually receiving loans, even though it adds up to be much more than that. That's right. There are certain rules where franchises can basically get loans on their own. What you can end up with is just these small tendrils of a larger business that have found a way to qualify as an independent business when in reality they may not be. They may be directly owned by the parent company. They may get direct financial support from the parent company and the profits from that business may go up to the parent company. So I think it really gets at the question of what defines you know, a small business. If, if someone is associated or owned by a larger national chain, are you a mom and pop shop or are you part of a large corporation? So has there been a public acknowledgement from the government that this is a problem, that some of these companies should not have been receiving this money? After seeing that some large companies like Shake Shack were getting these loans, the government sort of went back and, for lack of a better word, modified the rules to some extent. What the Treasury Department did a few weeks ago is it came out and said large businesses that are publicly traded and have access to capital markets may not qualify under the spirit of the law. Certain people on the PPP may have not been clear in understanding the certification. So we will give people the benefit of the doubt. We're going to put an FAQ out, explain the certification. If you pay back the loan right away, you won't have liability to the SBA and to Treasury. Because you're relying on businesses to basically make a good faith certification that they need one of these loans, the Treasury Department is saying a business that is publicly traded has a lot of cash available and could potentially get a loan elsewhere really doesn't qualify under that. So what we saw after that regulation was put out is that quite a few businesses sort of turned and said, we're going to return the loans. Ashford Hospitality Trust announced it would pay back the loans after being the subject of a lot of media criticism. Lindblad Expeditions, an exotic cruise company that runs the National Geographic Exotic Cruises, also paid back its loan. Several businesses, I think, are worried about the legal implications of having taken that money, especially now that Treasury has said, you know, we're giving you a warning on this. There are severe consequences uh, for people who don't attest properly to this certification. Others are sort of sitting on it. 
A company called CPI Aerostructures has not said whether they would return the loan. This is a defense contractor that had quite a bit of cash on hand the last time they reported it. They received one. Uh, There are plenty of other companies that have said, you know what, we're on fine legal footing. At the time that we applied, there was no Treasury Department rule in place, so we're just going to wipe this out. Companies that have chosen to ignore that warning, they could be audited by the SBA, by the IRS, and in extreme cases, you could see them being investigated by fraud divisions in the Department of Justice. There are several enforcement mechanisms that the government has when people effectively get access to government money that they should not have access to, and there are very serious penalties for that. And let me just say, I'm going to be putting out an announcement this morning that for any loan over $2 million, the SBA will be doing a full review of that loan before there is loan forgiveness. So we will make sure that what was the intent for taxpayers is fulfilled here. So at the end of the day, how much money for these small businesses has essentially been given out so far and how much is left? Like, are we kind of near to scraping the bottom of the barrel at this point? So the money has already run out once. It will run out again. And then it'll just be a question of whether Congress wants to reallocate it. I think now we're seeing Congress being very, very skeptical of the direction of this program. They're going to have a lot of questions next time it comes up about whether uh, we should again allocate hundreds of billions of dollars for this. Aaron Gregg writes about business for The Post. Now, one more thing about how the coronavirus turned a humble hand sanitizer into an object of worship. Okay, so the history of Purell. This sounds like it would be an easy question, but it's actually not. I'm Monica Hesse, and I'm a columnist for The Post. The official history is that it was developed by a a company called Gojo based in Akron, Ohio, that's been making cleaning products ever since World War II. It was founded by a husband and wife team looking for something to help factory workers clean their hands better. The mythological history is that there was a nurse in 1966 named Lupe Hernandez in California who got the idea that by combining alcohol and glycerin, you could create a hand-washing substitute that didn't require any water. So that's the mythology of it. And, And part of our story was really trying to figure out if we could substantiate that or what really was the true creation story of Purell. We spent a long time contacting historians and medical historians, nursing professors, anyone who should know writers of medical history textbooks and we couldn't we couldn't actually find that she existed so lupe hernandez if you are out there if your children are out there then contact us we would love to talk to you i think that when we're talking about purell sometimes we're just talking about a talisman that makes people psychologically feel better it makes them it makes them feel like they're being proactive in the face of something that they can't control and so when we're talking about buying bottles of hand sanitizer 
We're talking as much about our own psychology as we're talking about medicine. We're talking about how small we all feel in the face of this and how we'll grasp on to anything that can be bottled that might make us feel a tiny bit better. Monica Hesse is a columnist for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you are on Twitter and have questions or thoughts on a story that you've heard on the show, feel free to tweet at us. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 